Good morning. If you have your Bibles, and I'm sure you do, uh, turn with me to Mark. Of course, we're going to be continuing in Mark, and we're going to be looking at chapter 9, moving along in the gospel from chapter 9, verse 14 through 29. It says, When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and scribes disputing with them. All of a sudden, when the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. Then he asked them, What are you arguing with them about? Out of the crowd, one man answered, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He was uh, was a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Wherever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought him to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately convulsed the boy. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said. And many times it has thrown him into the fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Then Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible to the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly coming together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you are mute and deaf spirit. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and convulsing him violently. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, he's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him, and he stood up. After he went into a house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this time that we can gather and worship you, to to look on you, to be in your presence, and to be changed by you forever, and to be changed together. God, we thank you for a a strong church family. We thank you that we get together freely like this where so many nations don't. And we pray for those churches around the world who have already met uh, in the wee hours of the morning and who who are done worshiping for now. God, we ask that you strengthen them just as you strengthen us. We thank you for connecting us to the global church. We thank you for connecting us most of all to you. Help us to look on you and worship you today, to see you rightly lifted up above all other names, above all other things that try to be called God. Only you are God and only you are worthy of worship. We worship you this morning, Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm usually telling you to get a pen or something and mark in your Bibles and kind of divide it up, but this morning it's a little different. This is more of a wild story, and we're just going to kind of look at it as it jumps out at us. It's not necessarily going to be in order as we go back through it. It's just going to be kind of the things that jump out. And the reason is it's a chaotic scene. If you like to read or if you're interested in 
learning more about Mark as we continue, because you're going to have, I think, many more weeks, maybe months in this book. It might be a good idea to buy a book called Mark as Story. Mark as Story. And it's kind of like a commentary. Um, it's talking a lot about the narrative features of Mark, the storytelling of Mark. And that's something I talk about a lot when I'm with you. One of the reasons is the first audience that Mark was writing to would have had this experience in a much different way. They didn't have someone necessarily preaching to them in the way that you do. However, a lot of them only had a few people who could read, a few people who were literate. And so they would often act out the story. And this is one of those that I think would be really good, like for a Sunday school class. I thought about asking my daughters to help me act it out, but it might get just too chaotic. Uh, but you know, you can see the, the story coming to life. You can see this boy, you know, writhing on the ground, convulsing. And in the middle of that, Jesus is having a conversation with him. And it's like, whoa, what's, what's going on? Why does he even wait like that? We're going to look at several of those kind of questions that just make us scratch our head for a minute. And first, we want to look at just the scene itself. Why is it so chaotic? What's unique about it? We're going to look at the context of how this just kind of appears out of nowhere and why it's so shocking to us. Then we're going to look at the characters in the story, especially the father, because as parents, a lot of us can relate to that father. I think I told a similar story to this one and uh, talked about kind of the emotion that must be going on in a parent when we talked about the leper and the desperation of the leper because uh, our daughter actually had a, a seizure. Uh, I don't know if all of you were here for that one, but it's, it's very emotional for the parents during that because they feel helpless. So it's, it's somewhat similar to that story, but it's a lot different too because if you remember this as a demon doing this, <laughs> it's not just a medical seizure brought on by fever. But we'll look at that. We'll look at the father, how he was feeling, what he was doing, why he was bold in approaching Jesus, why he confessed both faith and doubt at the same time, and why that's okay why Jesus called that out. And then we're going to look at the crowd and the disciples, those gathered around. And finally, we'll look at Jesus and how him being on the scene changes everything. So the context helps us kind of see how wild and chaotic this story is. If y'all were here last week, and if you weren't, here's a little refresher. You talked about the Mount of Transfiguration. And Elijah and Moses are there. And it's really a similar scene to when Moses goes to the mountain back in the Old Testament. And his face is shining bright when he comes off the mountain. And he actually has to cover it up. It's a really incredible story. And I just want, want to ask you, have you ever had like a mountaintop experience and then like a worshipful experience and then immediately after that it was like you were thrust into like the depths of hell just absolute chaos has anyone ever had that experience it might even be straight from leaving church uh, i know a lot of youth camps christian youth camps are careful to warn their students hey this 
this experience is great and you should hang on to it. But at the same time, it's easy to worship Jesus here. Everybody agrees with you. Everybody's worshiping Jesus. They're encouraging you, just like Sunday mornings. It's easy here. But pretty soon you're going to go out into that world and there's going to be trials and temptations. There's going to be a lot of things that aren't from God and you're still going to need to worship God in the midst of that. And that's a good warning. But that's that similar experience of super high going into super low. That, that's what we have going on here. So the, the disciples, the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, come down with Jesus from that mountain. And they've just experienced God himself speaking and saying about Jesus, confirming that he is Lord. They come down off of that. I mean, their minds are already swimming. They're like, what in, what in the world is going on? And they come down to see the disciples in this big crowd gather around, making a fuss. And Jesus asks what's going on. And out of this crowd, this, this father comes up, kind of boldly comes up. The crowd was amazed. And again, this, this kind of throws us back to that, that scene of Moses coming down off the mountain. They could see that Jesus was awesome. It doesn't say why. Maybe their faces were shining like, like Moses' was when he came down off the mountain. But we know that the crowd was amazed. They knew there was something different about this man, about Jesus. And the dad certainly knew there was something different about Jesus. Let's talk about the father a little bit, the one who comes out of the crowd. He wasn't convinced that we live just in a material world only. And as Christians, and especially in America, I think we have to be careful of this. We tend to think that all we see is all that's real. And especially in conservative Bible-believing circles, we, we can tend to think that there is no spirit world. On the other hand, and other, uh, let's say, less conservative Christian circles, you have what I like to call American animism. American animism. And that's kind of a play on words, uh, but it's similar to animism in Eastern contexts. And I'll, I'll tell you what animism is. It's basically the belief in the spirit world. It's like this pantheism where spirits animate everything. So in East Asia, it's very common to run into people who believe that there is a spirit that brought on a storm. And so this entire tribe moved to a different place because they couldn't keep that spirit happy. And he brought a storm on them. But it could be as simple as their daughter caught a fever, for, for example, and that was a spirit. Now, we can't jump into that extreme where there's a spirit behind every little thing. But we need to come to grips with the reality that this material world is certainly energized and overlaid with a spiritual reality, that there's a spiritual warfare at all times going on, and that even things like fevers are brought on by the sin in this world, that we live in a broken, fallen world. We just don't want to go all the way over to the other extreme and think that, you know, me breaking a guitar string is spiritual warfare, like a demonic attack, right? 
there's a big, huge difference in attributing everything to spiritual activity, especially demonic activity. And, and often that comes with not even seeing the, the positive spirituality, that, the, that Jesus protects us from so many things, that Jesus sends angels to, to come and help us. But there's a big difference in that and downplaying it to where it's never reality, that we just don't even pray anymore because, oh, we'll just go to the doctor if we're sick. And thinking that everything, every single thing is spiritual warfare. So how, how do we engage in this spiritual warfare? We simply rely on the authority of Jesus. And, and we acknowledge it. We acknowledge that we live in a broken world. This is sin. Uh, this is sin bringing on sickness, bringing on whatever the, the problem is. And at the same time, we engage in prayer. We ask Jesus to take care of it. We don't have to identify if it's a particular spirit, where it is, how tall it is, what it looks like, things like this. That you, I, you can bet that this father wasn't worried about all those particulars. He wanted his son free. And that's the way we ought to, ought to pray. That's the way we ought to approach this whole subject you know and i i don't again i don't want to pit these things against each other like you only believe in in spiritual reality or you only believe in materialism we have to understand that god made both and both are there and a lot of times you see on tv especially like medical dramas you see the straw man painted of christians like they won't believe in medicine you know silly old christians you know you see characters like that and it's like there are those out there but I'm not advocating for that, okay? And I don't think any of you are either. So we, we should do like the Father and recognize that our ultimate reality, our ultimate problem is a spiritual one. The, the problem facing our kids is a spiritual one. Our problems are a spiritual one first, and oftentimes there are material things at play as well. But this man, he wasn't worried about walking that tightrope that I just did, trying not to go into one extreme or the other. The only thing he cared about was getting to Jesus. And he knew it when he even went there. He was going to look for Jesus. He met his disciples, but he was going to have his son healed. The desperation, though, now boils into... Uh, like a frustration or at the very least like a disillusionment because here he is he's got all his hope all his hope is wrapped up in Jesus and finding a healing and he takes this boy there he's been living with this for years as we'll find out later and he finally thinks he has this hope and now that the disciples can't do it they can't cast out the demon so that would be pretty disheartening for us as well I believe let's consider that feeling of hopelessness for a minute you know when your child is sick it's the worst feeling in the world it's it's so helpless I talked about it with with Ireland a while ago you don't really know what to do but it's even worse when they're babies because they can't speak all they can do is cry and they don't really point to anything and let you know this is a problem. You just got to try. <laughs> well, that wasn't it. This wasn't it. And it's like troubleshooting. You just got to look for the problem. Well, with this son, 
the demon that was attacking him was causing him to be mute. So it's a similar situation. He couldn't say what was going on. He couldn't speak at all. Um, so seizures are, are similar to this situation. They have a child convulsing to the point where they can't talk or anything like that. But again, we, we need to remember that this demon was behind it all. And the, the mute nature that is mentioned here and then later emphasized by Jesus is, is important too. It took away his power to communicate. In verse 25, Jesus isn't like mocking the, the demon by calling him mute and deaf. He's actually describing exactly who he is. You know, most demon encounters Jesus has, he, he actually talks to the demons. They actually usually initiate it and like say, oh no, don't have anything to do with me. They're cowering in fear. And in a sense, not worshiping, but almost worshiping Jesus to the point where they're saying, you know, you're all powerful. We know you could get rid of us in, a, in an instant. Please have mercy on us. Do, do something else with this. They try to bargain with him, but, but this one doesn't speak at all. So it's actually the, the nature of the demon itself that causes the boy to be unable to speak. Let's read that. Verse 25, it says, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. So Jesus helps this hopeless father, this hopeless child who, who can't say anything, who can't point to the problem, who can't describe how bad it feels, anything like that. And not only does he identify the problem and rid him of the problem, he says, You're never going to have this problem again. This problem that's plagued him for, it says, since childhood, since a long time. Apparently this boy, maybe he was in his teen years, we're not sure, but the, the problem had been consistent, and now Jesus was freeing him finally and for the future. It's a pretty incredible thing. But then again, there are so many chaotic things happening in the story. Remember, it's like if, if I was standing here and somebody was convulsing on the ground. I mean, imagine, imagine that chaos. It says that the, the demon actually slammed him to the ground. Have any of y'all ever been slammed to the ground? Anybody? In sports or anything? I know I had five older brothers, and we couldn't really watch uh, like wrestling at our house or even that much football because as soon as the commercial would come on, we would try all those moves. And <laughs> some of my parents are like, no, can't do it, too, too much chaos. You know, you can imagine between four or five brothers like jumping off the back of a couch and throwing elbows and uh, body slamming each other. This makes for a pretty big uh, chaotic scene. <laughs> so I know what it's like to be body slammed. Uh, and it's not a great experience. It actually takes your breath away. And the pain of hitting the ground, is, it, it does sting. But that's not the first thing you feel. The first thing you feel is like all the air go out of your lungs. And you're like, <gasps> you're gasping for breath. And you can't get it. And it feels like it takes forever till you can actually breathe again. And, and then during all that, when you do begin to breathe again, then you start to feel that pain like the back of your head, all down your back. And it's, it's not a very pleasant experience. And this, 
this dad and mom had to watch this son, you know, stiffen up and be slammed to the ground, actually slammed to the ground. Now with my brothers, you know, my dad could go just snatch up whichever one was bigger and <laughs> tell, him, tell him to stop, get off of him. But imagine that as a parent, seeing all this happen to your kid. Like, it's like a horror movie almost. Like the kid's being stiffened up, picked up, slammed onto the ground and shaking. And you can't do anything about it. The, the enemy is invisible. I mean, what a, what a terrible experience. It's worse than a horror movie because it's, it's real. It's reality, and it's been his reality for a long time. So imagine if that was your child, your grandchild. Imagine how heavy that would weigh on you day in and day out. I mean, like if you really paused to think about it, you would become a much stronger prayer warrior, wouldn't you? Like all of a sudden, you, like the unceasing prayer that Paul talks about, you would, never, you would never stop praying. It would be all the time. Even between, between these fits and episodes, you would be saying, God, uh, you know, release this from my boy. Put it on me. You'd be praying that way. Put it on me, God. What, whatever it is, like, heal him, free him. Over and over you would be praying this way. You would be doing everything you could. You'd take him to see anybody. But then especially if Jesus came to town, you'd be there as fast as you could. And then the, the next weird thing I see about this encounter is he was foaming at the mouth. I mean, this scene just gets crazier and crazier. Have, have y'all ever seen anyone foam at the mouth? Anybody? R- rabies, anything like that? I, I have seen it one time in East Asia. Uh, we were actually going up to this village, and there was a party. We were looking for a particular person, a believer who had been baptized by our friends years ago. And he wasn't there, but we didn't know that yet, so we were going around. And we walk into this, this little community with a big gate. And the, the gate doors are open for us. And you can kind of just, bear, like, if you were standing on that inside, you could not see really all the way around the gate, but if you were coming in from the outside, you could see it around the corner. And we could see this guy, many people were drunk, but you could see this one guy especially who was just sauced. And he saw us and charged after us and started making this big scene. And you, you knew he was drunk right off the bat because you could smell it as he was walking up. But then he also had foam. And it wasn't like, I, I don't mean to play up the story like it was like rabies or something, like it was like foaming out. But he had foam all, all over his mouth, greenish, whitish foam, string. Every time he talked or yelled, it would just kind of like sling out. And it was like stretched from one, one side to the other. And that whole team, including myself, believed that that wasn't from beer, that he was experiencing the same diagnosis that this boy was it, he was demonized. And that scene just, it got pretty chaotic too. Uh, but that, that's disgusting, right? Foam. I mean, that's not something people do, really. And you can imagine these parents had maybe seen animals do that, but their own son, like, he, the demon is doing everything he can 
to destroy this, this child. I think Mark does a good job of pulling us into the story. He gives us all these details, all these kind of gory details, really. Uh, and he, he pulls us in, and he tells us even like next, if I can't keep saying, imagine this, imagine that, but I, I kind of wish I could, because as, as you're reading it, if you do that, if you take the time to look at this and think about how terrible that would be to be thrown into the fire and the water. I mean, think about that. The slightest little burn on, like on your finger from cooking or something, like, it's terrible. And the demon's actually throwing him into the fire and into water. It's so clear that he's trying to take this kid out. And so I pointed out a few different crazy details about this chaotic scene, but let's go back and look at them each in the story. It says that these three things are in the text between verses 21 and 22, and you'll see like the assassination attempt, or you might call it attempted manslaughter, where he's throwing him into the fire and the water. You'll see the frequency of the attacks, that it happens quite often, and the history, the long history from childhood. Verses 21 and 22 show us that during this little mini-interview that Jesus is having with him. It says, And again he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. When you read this, you might not at first recognize the chaos of the situation. Um, I think if you're a parent, you can. If you're a parent, uh, it kind of becomes apparent that, wow, this, this guy's going through a lot. And it's not just him, it's his kid who's really going through a lot. And you can imagine that if you came to Jesus for a healing for your child and you were in this terrible situation and it starts happening right there in front of Jesus, as Jesus is beginning to interrogate you, I mean, imagine what, what must be going through your mind. For me, I think this would be a problem for me. I would say, you know, like, that's my baby. Can we talk about this later? Like, can you heal my baby? Look, look, you know, why are we talking right now? And I don't know if I would be bold enough to say that. I would hope that I would say that. I think I probably would. But this, this father doesn't do that. He, he answers Jesus' questions. I think he truly believes that Jesus can heal, even after having been disappointed by the disciples' inability to cast this demon out. Just feel the heaviness and the weight of that situation, of that happening in front of Jesus, of it happening in front of the disciples and them being unable to do it, and then Jesus kind of prolonging the situation by talking. That, that, again, that would feel a little bit like your hope is kind of getting diminished and diminished a little more. Maybe at the beginning we could see this man's desperation, um, but we see it building into something. Maybe not frustration, but I think quite the opposite. I think it's like de-escalating. Like I said, I think his hope is diminishing. It seems that way. I feel like that would probably be the case for me. I would struggle to believe in that case. Verses 16 through 18 show us that conversation. And, you know, remember Jesus and the three disciples had just come off the mountain and entered this chaotic scene. 
And pay attention to the man's response, especially in verse 18, at the very end, what he says. It says, and he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. They couldn't do it. You can kind of hear his, his disappointment, right? Maybe even how this affected his view of Jesus, because these are Jesus' followers. He's assuming that, that they would be able to do it, and as you'll find out later, they're assuming the same thing too, that they would be able to do it. So one of the big questions we have to ask is, why couldn't they? Look at verses 23 and 24. I'll start about halfway through 23 here. It says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And this is the most important part of the the interview process here with Jesus and the Father. Because Jesus calls him out. He says, if you can. Jesus repeats back to him what he just said, if you can. Now, because the disciples can't do it, you think I can't do it? I'm God. <laughs> I'm God in the flesh. But Jesus wants him to hear this. He wants him to, to vocalize this doubt so he can put words to it. So he can see, I do believe up here that you can do it. I, I believe mentally, but I need it in here. I need that belief at the heart level that you will and can and want to do this. And so Jesus calls that out from him, and I think he does that with us a lot of times. I think we should look at this father and see him as a stellar example of how we ought to pray, how we ought to seek God, not just on behalf of our children, but in our own lives. I think deep down we have some prayers that sound like this. I've prayed a lot of times, God. I'm just going to leave it there. This is just my thorn in the flesh, I guess. We might even put it off on the church, kind of like he put it off on the disciples to some degree. Your church let me down. They're supposed to be your followers. They have big faith. Look at how holy they are. They prayed and it didn't happen. Now, we might not articulate this stuff to God, but deep down, a lot of times we get there. We, our faith is diminished and diminished. We might even say that, you know, they prayed in a specific method that they came up with. You know, especially some of this American animism I was talking about earlier, where you have people saying, well, I found a way to get rid of every demon. You know, that sort of thing. So the answer must be no. And we kind of resign to this helplessness. Or maybe it's that you won't do it. And worst case scenario, what's really going on is, Deep down, we feel like maybe he can't do it. And when we're honest with ourselves, and we're able to be honest with God, Jesus is calling that, that out. He wants us to get it out so that he can give us more faith. Because we don't muster up faith from within us. Faith comes from without. The, the Spirit infuses us with, with faith. He gives us the faith to believe. This unbelief, it, it creeps in. And it's easier than we might think. We might think it, 
you know, well, now I'm a believer, so all doubt is gone. But really, our life in Christ is a wrestle. It's this tension between belief and unbelief. And often, if we were honest, it, it would be good to pray this prayer all the time. I believe. Help my unbelief. And those areas where I'm struggling to see that you are all-powerful, that you are good, that you want to do good for me for your glory, where I struggle to believe that, Jesus, give me faith to believe. I want to believe. I know it's true up here. I know you're God. But I want to believe deep down. We should take that example to heart. We should, we should pray this, this prayer. We should live with prayers constantly like this. Uh, too often we think of faith as like a finish line. You know, we live this way and now we've come here and we're no longer that person. We came out of the kingdom of darkness and entered a kingdom of light. And that's true, but it's really like the starting line because then you have a whole new life. Whether you're 80 or 8, you have a whole new life with God after that point. It's more like a starting line. And... Yes, he gave us the faith to believe in him for our hearts to be regenerated. He did all that work, but he continually does that work. He's continually saving us. He's continually giving us faith. Even with our assurance, even with our assurance that we're believers, that we're in the family of God, we should, we should continue to confess both negative, God, I'm struggling to believe here, and positive, I know you can do it. Give me the faith to believe deep down. So this big if word was a problem because it was doubting Jesus' ability. Not, not just his character. It, it doubted that too, but it was his ability. If you can do it, take pity on us and help us. I want, I want to pray for us for a minute about that. And Maybe as I've, as I've been talking about that, you have thought of areas in your life where you struggle to believe. Maybe not. I'm going to give us a few minutes just to quietly pray before God and, and ask the Spirit to reveal those things to us. And even throughout this week, if, if he doesn't today, ask him that he would start to show you those areas so that, so that we can grow in our faith in him, that we wouldn't see faith as a stagnant thing but, a, but an ongoing thing. So I give us a few minutes of quiet, and then I'll lead us in a prayer. Father, we confess uh, that it's not always easy to believe. In fact, sometimes our circumstances have more to do with our belief and have more to do with our doubt than what we know to be true of you. And so we ask that you continue to reveal to us, both now and, and this week as we go about our lives, in what ways is my heart growing hard? In what ways are my eyes growing small? And in what ways are the ifs of life becoming bigger than the big, big, glorious God I serve? God, we love you and we confess these areas. We know they're there. We know they're sometimes hidden. And we want you to reveal them to us so that we can grow in our faith in you. Help us to do that this week. Jesus. Amen. Now, we've paid special attention to the Father, and 
we've seen that he's a stellar example in the way he rightly recognizes the problem, that it's a spiritual one, and even holding in balance the, the spiritual and material aspect of things. We see that he rightly believed in, in Jesus and knew that Jesus could take care of it and, and how to deal with that disappointment by confessing to God. But what about the other problematic story that's going on here? That's kind of the journey with the disciples. The big question of why, why couldn't they cast it out? They were shocked. It says... In verse 19, and he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. So we know that generation, unbelieving generation, the disciples were standing there, so it certainly included them, but it probably included everyone there. Right? Because he could have easily said, O you unbelieving disciples. I got my three good ones with me. What's up, what's up with y'all? <laughs> what are y'all doing? Have y'all been paying attention? He doesn't really do this. He's talking to everyone there. And again, he's calling out those levels, those lacks, lack of unbelief in them. But, you know, it's kind of, you might be reading this and thinking like I was, that it's kind of unfair like, Jesus says this kind can only come out with prayer. Like, how could they know that? How did they know that this, this was like a special militant type of, of demon? It doesn't really indicate that. But maybe Jesus is telling them that they've grown arrogant. Maybe like this sort of naive arrogance. That because they follow Jesus, well, his authority just rubs off on me by his Moses, by rubbing shoulders with him. Most of the manuscripts don't add that fasting, prayer and fasting at the end of that. Some of them do. This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Mine has and fasting, and it says down there that the earlier manuscripts don't actually include that. But we know that Jesus isn't talking about mustering up just enough faith and doing it. He's saying there's something altogether different about this one. And not only about this demon, but about their approach. Maybe they don't just say, get out. Maybe they say, on the authority of Jesus, you have to leave this child. We know Jesus, again, often spoke with the demons themselves before he cast them out. And we know that the disciples, to this point, had been seeing that and had been sent out and cast out demons, too. So they were shocked. They were disappointed themselves. And you can see that. Uh, let's see. In verse 28. Okay. After he went into a house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? That was just a burning, nagging question going on. As soon as they got in private, they were like, we need to air this matter out. Like, that was embarrassing. We don't want that to happen again. And not only was it embarrassing for them, they felt that it probably brought shame on Jesus in some small way. And we see that the father probably felt similarly too when he said, if. I brought it to your disciples, they couldn't do it. If you can, it's my last effort. 
And these miracles in all the Gospels are beautiful because they're not just like a, an allegory where like we apply everything about them to our own life, but in a way they do all have this par- parabolic sense. They stand as a parable or a picture of the ultimate miracle that Jesus brings us in that salvation. We were once mute, couldn't speak. We couldn't even utter out the cry, Jesus, save me. We were once rigid, racing after, after death, not, con- not controlling our own selves, but being controlled by the things around us, by, by this broken, fallen world. We were in spiritual paralysis, suffocating from being slammed down by, by life storms and thrown into the fires and waters of life's problems and drowning eternally. We, we really were going after eternal death when Jesus met us. And further into that darkness, let's consider the, the kid, and I'll, I'll move quickly here. The kid was very much the true victim. I'm sorry, I'm trying to determine how much of this <laughs> to, to cut here. Let's look at verses 25 through 27 really quickly. And this, is, this tells us how the story really wraps up for the boy. It says, When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. Really quickly, this parallels with another story where Jesus healed a child. Are you all... Is it jogging your memory at all? There was a father involved. They thought the kid was dead. Okay. This is an incredible parallel, really. There's so many things similar. The father approaches Jesus. The crowd thinks they're dead. They even mock Jesus in that earlier story with the girl. Jesus comes and calls her to get up. He's like, and I, I don't know who preached that message to y'all, but there's a very special term in there that they actually don't even translate it from the Greek, talitha kum. And the reason is it's so special. It's only a father could say it. it would, it's like the equivalent of something around the lines of like, get up, honey, wake up, or wake up, sugar, something like that, like a term of endearment. And that, he tells her this, and... She gets up, and then he looks after her care after that. Hey, she's hungry. Get her something to eat. He does the same thing with this boy. He takes him by the hand, stands him up, and not only has he freed him there, totally liberated him from this demonic oppression, but in the future he safeguarded the rest of his life. Do not enter him again. He bars him for life from entering the boy, from from harassing him. So, so we looked at the chaotic scene, the crazy situation. Uh, we looked even a little bit about the, the, the demon, the kid, the father, the disciples, the crowds, but the most important character is Jesus. Now, how do we see Jesus in the story? Maybe you're a little bit 
puzzled or troubled to some degree by Jesus carrying on this conversation. But again, we can remember that he, he spoke to those demons before he cast them out so that he knew what was going on like a good doctor does, like a physician does, like a shepherd does when he sees his children in, in harm's way, when he sees the sheep in harm's way, he finds out how that happened. Where's the breach in the fence? Where's the tracks of the wolves? Where's the closest in? How do I take care of this? He, does, he has that same love and affection for this boy. And he wants to know how long this brutality has actually been going on. He's getting a medical history, essentially, from this father. So we should look at Jesus' heart. While it, while it puzzles us to see that going on, at the same time, we need to recognize Jesus' heart, his character, what he's showing us about himself during this situation. He could give them more faith than he did. He could give the Father more faith than he did. He could guide the disciples into a future life of faithfulness that would lean only, only on his authority. Some of your Bibles may call this section, mine, this one says, the power of faith over a demon. This is the Gospel Project one. The NASB says all things are possible or something along those lines or all things are possible to those who believe. But that's the crux of Jesus' answer. That's like the, the ultimate thing of this whole story. He says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And it's not just some empty belief. It's belief in Jesus, that Jesus can do it. And today, again, still all things are possible. The one who has all authority gives us assurance of this, that we don't and won't go wrong when we put all our trust in him. Even if, if it's diminishing, even if we find ourselves struggling to believe and doubting and faith, and we get this inner turmoil going on, we put our faith, our trust, our heart, our whole lives, everything in his hands. He'll take care of it. He'll take care of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Uh, we just thank you for your word. Help us to cherish it. Help us to, to be changed by it. As your word says, it renews our mind. God, thank you for meeting us where we were, where we are. Even now, God, if there are those here who do not know you, who have not been freed similarly to this, young boy or who have not had their faith granted to them by you like this father or the disciples. God, we ask that they meet you now, just like we met you in this story. We ask that they meet you now and, and in the coming years that they continue to grow in their faith, wrestling with that unbelief, confessing it to Jesus, and just being assured that you're a good father with a good character. You're a big, big God with whom all things are possible and that we can rest, trust, and believe in you. We believe. Help our unbelief, Jesus. Amen.